Hello, and welcome to Read Scholars Live. I'm your host, Mary Fleming, and the current president of Read Scholars. Read Scholars is compromised of physicians, dentists, and mental health specialists committed to collective action to achieve health equity. The purpose of this podcast is to have conversations with leaders in health equity to discuss innovative solutions uh, to narrow the gap in health disparities. With that being said, Let's talk health equity. Today's guest and fellow Reed Scholar is Dr. Rhea Boyd. Dr. Boyd trained at Notre Dame in Indiana and at Vanderbilt in Nashville, Tennessee, before taking up residency in the Bay Area, where she completed her residency training in pediatrics. Dr. Boyd uses her voice to advocate for vulnerable populations, but also to to, to critique the intersection of racism, health, and justice. She has published in The Lancet. She blogs on her own site and travels nationwide to speak to audience on how racism is affecting the health of our country. Welcome, Rhea. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to chat. Any updates? Did I miss anything? Have you done anything exciting uh, that we need to know about in the past you know, couple weeks or months? Um, let's see. I'm working on a couple of new projects, uh, some of which I started during my fellowship year. So one of my learning goals, um, I graduated from the fellowship two years ago, and one of my learning goals then was to better understand the growing data infrastructure in healthcare and how that infrastructure could perpetuate or potentially be used to dismantle or eliminate forms of racism within healthcare. Um, and so more recently, I have been speaking and writing and learning more about that topic. And just a couple weeks ago, I was in Baltimore with um, Data Across Sectors in Health, which is an RWJ-sponsored um, nationwide networking platform that connects public health agencies and health nonprofits and clinics and hospitals who are all interested in sharing data um, among their local agencies that support population health. Um, and it was really a good experience. That's exciting. Yes, I actually had a chance to watch your um, your talk, and I, uh, I'm i hoping we touch on that a little bit today. Um, but I also think <laughs> this topic is so huge. Um, you know, I'm hoping that we'll be able to talk again um, in the future and get a little bit more into the kind of meat of data and um, health equity, especially as we come up to the symposium next spring. So definitely want to hear more about that. I wanted to start going back a little bit. And I always like to learn, you know, everybody's past. Like, how, how do we get here? Um, and I think it's great for people to understand our guests' personal journey to health equity. So can you tell us a little bit about how did you how did you start down this path? What led you to this particular aspect of health equity or were you doing something before and you had a, a shift or whatever you want to kind of share of your trajectory? Uh, so for me, I would say even when I was a little girl and I thought a lot about being a pediatrician, I always imagined pediatricians as kind of helpers in the world, as people who keep kids um, safe and protected. Um, and I thought about that even more than I maybe thought about their clinical role. And so even you know, as then I volunteered in high school at, um, I grew up in Akron, Ohio, and we have a children's hospital. And so I would volunteer at that children's hospital when I was in high school to see if it felt like a good fit for me. And even when I was doing my pre-medical prerequisite studies in college, I was always thinking more about what does it mean to kind of be a helper and protect kids. And so I think I came to the ideas around health equity really, um, early in my interest in medicine. 
But then I always say also to trainees or students who are coming up now, sometimes people will say to me like, oh, it must be your lived experience as a Black woman that helps you know about these topics. Mm -hmm. And I would say, in a sense, that can be true because um, my parents never shied away from exposing my sister and I to issues of racism that existed in their workplace or in our community and how that affected us personally um, and more broadly where we lived. Um, but at the same time, I think the Reed Scholars is such a critical platform to demonstrate that like, it's not just that I'm a black woman, it's that we as scholars have put so much time into learning more about health equity and learning more about racism and learning more about health policy. And so I would also say I have been privileged and blessed to have an enormous amount of education at this point to support my interest in health equity and some of the work that I've been doing. I mean, I think that's a very important distinction. Um, and I think for those of us who, you know, have the, the quote unquote lived experience, yes, sometimes we understand the experience, but we don't necessarily understand the implication or how to change or talk about the impacts over time. I'm from Louisville, Kentucky, which is probably not too much different from your hometown. But, you know, I think with, you know, and I feel the same way about the fellowship and learning how to have the conversations and how to translate um, the information into a usable form um, when talking to other people. So I would definitely agree with you about that. Um, I think the other thing is, you know, we can talk a, a long time about racism itself and how it influences health equity. Um, and I definitely, I, I mentioned it before, um, with that you, you know, you have your own blog, and and I think it's great for highlighting these nuances in a very usable and conversational way. And I think you do that well. I, I really enjoy how you um, articulate the conversation. And I also, you know, you mentioned the, the Dash All In Conference before, and I think you, you use that platform to give some very useful definitions for people to understand not just the word racism, but how does that manifest in everyday life? Um, and so I wanted to ask you if you could give us a couple of examples just to set the framework for the rest of the conversation about what what's the real difference between our concept of overt racism, what we think racism is and how it looks, you know, day to day in America versus the more implicit bias forms of racism or the more intrinsic infrastructural structural forms of racism and how those manifest. This is a good question, though, because I think um, when I teach students and trainees, I always try to make this distinction really clear because I think the differences between implicit bias and structural racism or institutional racism are really easily and often conflated. Um, so implicit bias, uh, first I guess I'll say the difference is levels. So implicit bias is something that happens at an interpersonal or individual level. So if you have an implicit bias, it's an unconscious preference or prejudice for one thing, group of people, whatever um, the thing is, it's a preference for one thing over another. Um, but that happens between one human and another human. Structural racism or institutional racism happens between broader systems that have rules 
through which groups of people are treated in a certain way or a different way. And um, those rules then have implications for how entire populations are treated, not just um, one individual. So an example might be, and I'll just choose a benign example, like an implicit bias might be that I prefer um, to wear red sweaters. Like that's a specific thing that I prefer for myself. But if you go into a workplace and they say, we only want to hire people who wear red sweaters, then you're discriminating against anybody who owns a red sweater and might want to wear it to their interview or maybe wears it every day. Um, the example is the level is either one-on-one and implicit bias tends to talk more about the types of um, bias or racism that's um, unconscious, but explicit bias is also one-on-one between one person and another. And institutional bias, where an entire system treats groups in a specific way. And I tend to focus in my work um, more on uh, institutional or structural bias or racism. Um, And I think different scholars tend to choose one or the other in their focus. And I think that um, makes, I think that helps us lead the conversation in a different way. And I, for many of us, and I think on a day-to-day level, um, we when we can, it's like anything else. It's like, you know, to use a health example um, for people who have high blood pressure and they're like, oh, but I feel fine. But no, your blood pressure is 200 over 100, right? You're not fine. Um, <laughs> and it needs to be treated, right? So sometimes it's so much easier for us to treat things that we can see. Mm-hmm. And so I think when we talk mm-hmm. about um, racism, like, you know, if somebody, you know, uses... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, racist language out loud towards some person, then it's like, well, I understand, I see that. But when it's built into the infrastructure of a system, it's not as easy to see. And so, you know, I've heard a little bit more about um, talking about racism as a, um, well, I should say we have started talking about racism as a contributing factor to poor health outcomes, right? And I think that's a different from even when I was in training, you know, 10 years ago, we talked about health disparities. We talked about socioeconomic factors. We talked about um, social determinants of health to a degree, but we didn't name uh, racism as a independent factor um, that contributed to poor health outcomes. And so I feel like that is a shift in the conversation. And and I appreciate that shift that, you know, we can't, like anything else, we can't address it if we don't name it. And so I do appreciate that they, we have been given more and more platforms and spaces to talk about it. Um, and I, I do feel like we're moving in a positive direction in that way. And using the the, the kind of the analogy of chronic disease, which is what I, I feel like a few more people in the space are doing um, in, in recognizing that these symptoms can sometimes be um, ignored or unseen um, and and also chronic in the degree that we can't just, you know, fix it. We can't just wave a magic wand and say, oh, you know, our country's not racist anymore. We, you know, we can move on. And so I think changing to that conversation makes things a little different. With that being said, do you see any major strides or accomplishment in the area that say we are moving in the right direction? And vice versa, are there any big hurdles or obstacles or if we made any, you know, two step backs in any areas that, um, you know, are areas that we need to kind of do more work? Yeah, I think you kind of outlined one of the areas where I'm not sure if this is 
progress or if it is stalling us. And that is the focus a number of health organizations have on implicit bias. I think they tend to focus on implicit bias because to your point, it's um, easier to recognize. Um, It's easier to own because it's something that happens unconsciously. So you can say, well, that wasn't my intention. And it kind of happens one-on-one. So in that regard, trainings might be a useful way to rid systems of something like implicit bias. But when you want to try to weed out how the rules treat people differently, how policies that structure how people move and navigate through systems shape outcomes on the other end, it's a much more complicated um it's a much more complicated problem, I think, in some ways to face because you could have individuals in that system who don't have any implicit bias, who are all completely well-intentioned, who hope the best for every patient or client they serve, and yet they have stark racial disparities or inequities in health outcomes. And so then I feel more, um, I feel more challenged about what to do about that. Like, is talking about implicit bias a step for us towards talking about institutional racism? Or are people offering, those of us who are interested in getting to institutional racism, are they like offering us implicit bias as a way to distract us from actually talking about institutional racism and they never intend to go that next step? Um, So I'm not sure. I think it's great that we can talk openly about racism. I can say racism. I can say white supremacy. I talk about these things openly in my teaching and public speaking and in my writing. And it's accepted. Things will be published. I will be invited again to speak. Um, But is it really moving people? I don't know. Um, I don't know. I hope it does. (laughs) You know, I keep trying. (laughs) I mean, that's the hope. I mean, I... It is. And and again, you know, you kind of reflect in, you know, medicine, like anything else evolves over time. And and even the the words that we use and um, the uh, the data that's out there. And when I was like when I was in medical school, the you know, the catchword at the time was cultural competency. Right. And, you know, we Mm, since learned that that wasn't quite, you know, that wasn't really moving us in the direction um, that we needed to be. Yes, we talked about it some, but, you know, it was very skim the surface. Um, and some of the, um, I feel like rhetoric is a strong word, but some of the terminology and the teaching in these, you know, day long sessions that was supposed to fix cultural competency in a day, right. In these institutions, um, probably reinforced some of the, the stereotypes reinforced some of the, the feelings behind, um, that are influenced implicit bias, if you will. So, you know, I and I, I clearly don't have an answer, but um, yeah, I think I mean at this point, all we can do is keep trying, right, and and hope that at some point we will um, get back. We have we have made some some accomplishments, um, and so you know, one of you know the, the the goals of the podcast is to talk about innovations and where do we see um, areas of intervention or action, if you will. And I think one of the, the things you brought up in your dash talk uh, was not just about 
addressing health equity in your day job. So, you know, we talk a lot about health equity and health equity spaces or in health spaces. Um, and so I, I do feel like we spend a lot of time preaching to the choir, right? Like, well, we know these health disparities exist. We know there's data around them. Um, and, you know, there are some initiatives or programs or projects, if you will, or we need more, or we need more data um, around these topics, but not actually, not actually putting any place, any action um, to change people's minds or um, act- their actual everyday actions. And so one of the things you said is, um, let's move it outside of your day job. So if you're talking to your colleagues or your um, in your neighborhood meetings or your PTA meetings or at school board meetings, um, because health equity is not just about the healthcare space, right? It's about the transportation space and the education space and um, access to resources uh, in your everyday life. So are there any other thoughts? Would you like to expound on that anymore? Or are there any other um, ideas that you have? We can be more innovative or creative in having the conversations outside of um, you know, the academic space, if you will. Yeah, I think um, one of my colleagues that I met on Twitter, um, Dr. Ariana Plani, tweeted out maybe a couple of months ago something that was so provocative. And I don't even know if this is a direct quote from her, but I'll attribute it to her because it's where I first heard it. She said, um, healthcare is insufficient for health equity. It's necessary, but it's insufficient. And what she's getting at is like, if we only think of our role in advancing health equity in terms of how we do that in a clinical environment, we'll never get there. Because we know that everything that exists outside our clinical environments contribute to people's health, wellness, or you know, disease and demise. So what I was trying to say at the end of that talk was um, getting people to think more about how they just show up in the world in general. Because if part of what makes health inequitable is that we have profound inequality in society. We have some people who have a lot and way more people who have not enough. And doctors tend to be in that group of people who have a lot. And even if you didn't have a lot when you were a kid, becoming a doctor puts you in that group where you can start to have a lot. And that means you have more choices when you go back out into the world about where you choose to buy housing, where um, you choose to send your kids to school, what businesses you support, how you vote, what type of politics you engage in. Um, And those are places where I think people who work in healthcare have to think about being more responsible. Like if you really care about health equity, do you support your local public schools or do you send your kids to a private school in a failing, you know, district. These are deeply personal questions, but I think it gets to the the root of what it would really take to push forward change, to really move the needle. We can't just talk about it at work. We can't just pretend we're going to do one thing, but live our whole lives in a way that's the antithesis the antithesis of that thing. We have to be like that all the time and challenge each other and hold each other accountable for being like that all the time. Um, And that's really hard. I mean, there is data that doctors aren't even, you know, of professions. We're not even a profession that votes the most of everybody, you know, but 
voting is a way that really shifts local politics. And that's a way that really informs health equity and resource dissemination across communities. Like a very simple way to show up in the world in a way that supports health equity is to vote for health equity. Um, but not everybody does. So I feel like, uh, to your point, it would be a great place for people to start um, is not just in your workplace, but more importantly, in your home and your neighborhood. And, you know, we, we have so many historical um, examples of um, the shift of resources, right? And, you know, we talk about, you know, the 1950s and 60s when the, the shift in demographics and the urban settings and the suburban um, setting developed and and how those shift of resources changed our education system, right? And so I think that reinforces your point. The shift is still happening, um, but it's just a little bit less visible, right? Because our, our neighborhoods are a little bit more established and, you know, we have charter schools and we have public schools and we have, uh, you know, private, you know, faith-based schools and this this slow shift um, from out of the public schools into these other schools and how that is depleting our resources in the inner city schools and, and not just inner city schools, some of the rural schools as well. Um, you know, and it's just kind of one of our examples and, and that's where, you know, all of these things begin in childhood. And one of the reasons I always like to start with, you know, how do things begin is because th- these are when all of these um, um how we interact with people starts at such a young age. And so the things that we see and the things we are exposed to at that age is going to influence how we mature and grow. And so if we don't put that emphasis on early education and making sure that it's a place where at least our kids can be educated in an equitable way. So it's not unbelievable that when we grow up that we're still participating in a health system that's inequitable. And of course, there's plenty of other examples, you know, uh, that we could use to kind of show that that dichotomy, but uh, I, I thought that was a great you know way to uh, illustrate it outside of the healthcare space. Because I, I feel like we spend a lot of time talking to each other, but there's a there's a lot of other um, opportunities for us to to hold the conversation. Um, so. Kind of shifting gears a little bit. I, you know, I, I am very hopeful that I can have you back on um, in the spring because I would like to talk a little bit more about how, yeah. um, as we move into this increasingly technological space in and outside of healthcare, and and the increasing amount of data. I think in your talk you talked about exabytes or some word I'd never heard about. I was like, geez, Louise. Yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, you know, we're collecting more and more information from more and more resources and, you know, um, not in in data in that, you know, research data, but just data that we're getting from all of these other technological spaces. And like, what do we do with all this information and and what, you know, what is our responsibility as um, citizens? What is our responsibilities as physicians? What is our responsibility as the whoever owns this data, which I think is truly addressed. So I definitely want to, you know, come back and and talk about that as we get ready for next year's symposium. But um, anything that you kind of want to leave us with today or, you know, you want to challenge us to think about in that space, um, you know, as we get ready to close out our conversation? Um, Sure. Uh, First, thank you again for having me. And I would love to come back in the spring. Um, the other issue that I have been writing about and thinking 
much more about that I started to touch on in that dash talk um, was about whiteness and health. Um, because there's evidence to show that although we tend to think of white people as faring better in the U.S. healthcare system, and by many accounts that is still true, there's evidence to show that white middle-aged Americans age 45 to 54, the mortality rate is increasing. And for younger white Americans, the mortality rate associated with the opiate epidemic is increasing. And then if you look across the major causes of death, heart disease, cancer, the mortality rate for white people is increasing as well, uh, which raises questions about how we used to talk about health disparities. Um, some of those questions are, we used to define how we think, uh, we used to define like the gap between populations who had the worst health and populations who had the best health by comparing populations to white populations who um, were considered to have the best health. Um, but now, if at a population level, white health is declining, we now have to ask kind of what is kind of the litmus we're going to use to determine where we're trying to bring everybody's health. And then the second question that I'm really fascinated with is kind of what's happening to white people? And is it in any way similar to what's happening to black people and the indigenous and certain groups of immigrants and non-white people in general in America? How does structural racism and whiteness in particular affect population health for everyone in the United States. Um, and before we saw this striking trend in mortality rates for white Americans, we didn't really have the same impetus to have that type of question. I think we used to say things like racism hurts everyone, but it wasn't always apparent or evident how it hurt white people. And now to see that in the United States, amidst our growing economic inequality, like that white people are also faring worse. I think it's um, challenging us to think more about how racism works um, for everybody who are racialized in this system, which white people are also a racialized group of people. Um, so if I left folks with anything, it would be to take up some of these questions. How do you define the gaps in health and what should our standard of health be? What population should help us set that standard? Should it be an international population now? Um, or how should we set it? And then what do you make of what's happening to white people and what that means for all the other populations who have suffered poor health in this nation since its founding? Is it a commentary on racism? Is it a commentary specifically on whiteness as a type of racism? Um, and how do we address it? So... I'm still thinking of the answers and um, maybe next time we talk, we could take up that question too. Yes, that, uh, that is, uh, I'm trying to think of even how to respond. That is, <laughs> is, <laughs> so much, right? Um, I mean, because that, that's, that's a total paradigm shift when we think, I mean, and I agree, like we always um, usually say, you know, if it's the kind the same thing, like right? the weakest link concept, right? If we're not treating the most vulnerable population or vulnerable of our population well, then everybody is going to suffer. And so, you know, you extrapolate that to racism if you're actively um, 
uh, oppressing a group, at, at some point the whole is going to suffer. Mm-hmm. But when when the majority group become actually is sh- manifesting size of that suffering, that that shifts how we have the conversation. Um, so that is that is that is very interesting, and I, I am um, definitely going to stay tuned <laughs> uh, to learn and talk about that some more. But thank you again so much. I really appreciate um, you coming on today. And I would like to encourage our listeners to uh, be on the lookout for Dr. Rhea Boyd. I think we're going to see very, very exciting things coming from her her in the future. And she is such a dynamic speaker. So if you do get a chance to um, see her in person or watch one of her videos online, um, please do. Please do follow her blog. And I think it will help um, as we move this conversation forward and just, you know, learning new vocabulary words and learning new um, concepts. And I think it's, it's going to be a quickly evolving conversation. And um, I hope everybody um, is willing to get on board. With that being said, thank you again. I hope you have a good day and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you so much. Ta-da.